Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, I mean, to me, freedom is essential in the sense that we really need to pay close attention to whether or not we're giving non-human animals the best lives possible and that they're free to make choices and to have what people call agency. I'm sure that philosophers and others have written books on freedom and what it means and all that, and that's fine for them. But on the ground, it means letting animals perform what we call natural behaviors and giving them the freedom to determine what they can and what they're allowed to do. When you think about the lives of animals who are locked in cages in zoos and laboratories, they're not free at all. And most or many dogs who live in homes aren't free because their humans tell them you know, when they can eat, when they can pee, when they can poop, what they can eat, who they can play with, when they can play. And so people have these, in my view, distorted conceptions of freedom in terms of the way they interact and control and manage the lives of other animals. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Mark Beckoff. Mark is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. He has published 31 books, won many awards for his research on animal behavior, Animal Emotions, Compassionate Conservation, and Animal Protection. He's worked closely with Jane Goodall and is a former Guggenheim Fellow. Mark's latest books are Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do, and Unleashing Your Dog, A Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Companion the Best Life Possible, co-written with Jessica Pierce. And he also publishes regularly for Psychology Today. Mark and Jessica have recently written a different book, about what the world will be like for dogs as and when humans disappear. It will be called Dogs Gone Wild, Imagining the Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans, and will be published by Princeton University Press in 2021. In 1986, Mark won the Master's Age-Graded Tour de France. His homepage is Mark, M-A-R-C, Beckoff, B-E-K-O-F-F dot com. The book I will be discussing with Professor Beckoff today, co-written with Jessica Pierce, is 2017's The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age, 
published by Beacon Press. Every day we are learning new and surprising facts about just how intelligent and emotional animals are. Did you know rats like to play and laugh and also display empathy? And the ears and noses of cows tell us how they're feeling? At times, we humans translate that knowledge into compassion for other animals. Think of the public outcry against the fates of Cecil the lion or the captive gorilla Harambe. But on the whole, our growing understanding of what animals feel is not resulting in more respectful treatment of them. Renowned animal behavior expert Mark Beckoff and leading bioethicist Jessica Pierce explore the real-world experiences of five categories of animals, beginning with those who suffer the greatest deprivations of freedoms and choices, chickens, pigs, and cows in industrial food systems, as well as animals used in testing and research, including mice, rats, cats, dogs, and chimpanzees. Next, Beckoff and Pierce consider animals for whom losses of freedom are more ambiguous and controversial, namely individuals held in zoos and aquaria, and those kept as companions. Finally, they reveal the unexpected ways in which the freedoms of animals in the wild are constrained by human activity and argue for a more compassionate approach to conservation. In each case, scientific studies combine with stories of individual animals to bring readers face-to-face with the wonder of our fellow beings, as well as the suffering they endure, and the major paradigm shift that is needed to truly ensure their well-being. The animal's agenda will educate and inspire people to rethink how they affect other animals and how we can evolve toward more peaceful and less violent ways of interacting with our animal kin in an increasingly human-dominated world. Welcome, Professor Beckoff, and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. First off, your book is really amazing. Uh, I've read many books on animal rights, and yours is the first, I think, that really drives home the relevance of freedom as the central concept. And after reading your book, it becomes clear that freedom really is the central fact of the matter. The word gets thrown around a lot today, in particular within American politics, and perhaps has lost a bit of its meaning. But in terms of animals, as your book demonstrates, it really is the central question. So bravo, really. I I think this is a very important book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you've got it right. Um, People talk about freedom, but they really aren't really, (laughs) they think they're talking about freedom and they're not really talking about freedom in a very rich and deep way. After reading your book, it makes me want to go back to all those other animal rights books that I've read and figure out how they managed to make their case so effectively without really hammering away at such a central and obvious idea such as freedom. Right. As a way to begin, I was wondering, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, the focus of your work? My path to where I wound up studying animals and animal well-being, um, as well as to what I'm doing now, was anything but linear. I was grew up, or I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I always used to talk to all the animals there. And my mom was very compassionate and empathic, and my father he was an optimist who really supported me. So. Nobody who knew me back then is surprised by what I've been doing and I do right now. And I wasn't a particularly good student at all. But once I locked into wanting to study animal behavior and ethology and cognitive ethology, which is the study of animal minds, I got real serious about it. And so 
I was able to do what I really wanted to do. Let's begin with the central matter, freedom. You write, quote, Although we prize our freedom above all else, we routinely deny freedom to non-human animals with whom we share our planet. We imprison and enslave them. We exploit them for their labor and their skin and bodies. We restrict what they can do and with whom they can interact. We don't let them choose their family or friends. We decide for them when and if and with whom they mate and bear offspring and often take their children away at birth. We control their movements, their behaviors, their social interactions while bending them to our will or to our self-serving economic agenda, end quote. We do this in obvious ways by literally imprisoning cows and chickens, laboratory animals, zoo animals, pets behind cages. But we do this in subtle ways as well. You write, quote, like us, animals have what might be called higher order needs, such as the need to exercise control over their lives, make choices, do meaningful work, form meaningful relationships with others, and engage in forms of play and creativity. Some measure of freedom is fundamental to satisfying these higher order needs, end quote. And so in addition to denying animals the freedom of movement by locking them within walls and cages, we also deny them access to their natural biological impulses. Can you talk to us briefly about why freedom is such an important concept and why it really should be at the center of animal rights discussions? Well, I mean, to me, freedom is essential in the sense that we really need to, we need to pay close attention to the fact that, or whether or not we're giving non-human animals the best lives possible and that they're free to make choices and to have what people call agency. I'm sure that philosophers and others have written books on freedom and what it means and all that, and that's fine for them. But on the ground, it means letting animals perform what we call natural behaviors and giving them the freedom to determine what what they can and what they're allowed to do, you know. So when you think about the lives of animals who are locked in cages in zoos and laboratories, they're not free at all. And most or many dogs who live in homes aren't free because their humans tell them, you know, when they can eat, when they can pee, when they can poop, what they can eat, who they can play with, when they can play. And so people have these, in my view, distorted conceptions of freedom in terms of the way they interact and control and manage the lives of other animals. When you look at the animals we use through the lens of freedom, you see that it it isn't easy to find. For livestock animals, through animals in laboratories, but also pets. Animals that humans engage with, overwhelmingly, perhaps exclusively, live in captivity. And we dictate the terms of everything, even biological functions. When they can go to the bathroom, if and when we allow them to mate, across the board and innumerable ways, which you recount in your book. Freedom really is central. And there is something about it that many people don't notice. The ways in which animals are living beings with desires, and we thwart those desires in incredible ways by keeping them captive, by dictating where they can move, with whom of their species, if anyone at all, they can interact, if they can mate. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was you know, getting at, is that 
people who restrict the freedom of, or most people, I'm not going to say all, because I think there's some people out there who really like dominating and controlling the lives of other animals. But many people don't realize what they're doing. They're well-intentioned and they're trying to give their companion animals the best lives possible or people who torture animals in laboratories while they're not torturing them, try to keep them happy, if you will, and content. But <laughs> data and research show that their attempts really fail because these animals, you know, in zoos develop stereotype behavior, self-mutilation, and other destructive behaviors that you don't see in wild animals. So, so they're highly stressed. And the same can be said for other animals who are used in circuses, for example. I mean, nothing good happens to them there. And rodeos, where there's not one good thing that comes out of rodeos for the non-human animals. So there's no educational or supposed conservation type of message that's coming from rodeos or from uh, circuses. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to answer directly. Maybe I'm not answering your question simply because I just cash out freedom in a very practical way. And that is dogs need to exercise their noses. So do we guarantee when we live with a dog that their walk is for them, not for us. And if they want to spend 10 minutes sniffing, then that's what dogs do. So it's the same when people like to go to zoos. And, you know, these are not bad people. They're right-minded people. But they don't pay much attention to what's really happening to the animals who are locked in and crammed in these um, cages. So when I talk to people colloquially about the notion of freedom, it really means that, by and large, you're allowed with some constraints, I mean, we all have constraints on us, but with some constraints to be free to do what you'd really like to do and um, what you want to do in positive ways. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I guess we're all free to do bad things. But when we interact with non-human animals, we're in control of their lives. We just really need to face that. In one of my previous interviews, I spoke with your co-author, Jessica Pierce, about her book, Run, Spot, Run, mm -hmm. which delves much more deeply into the matters of freedom and ethics around pet keeping. And I would encourage our readers to try to be attentive to what the idea of freedom would mean in terms of animals, including the pets that we have and love, and to what degree they are able to act autonomously and not to what degree they're able to do the things they would want to do, and to what degree they are not. Speaking about good intentions, that serves as a nice transition. One of the central themes of your book is the difference between the science of animal welfare and the science of animal well-being. I will ask you about animal well-being, which you advocate for shortly, but for the moment, I'd like to ask you to clarify what you understand animal welfare to be. You write that quote, Welfare concerns generally focus on preventing or relieving suffering and making sure animals are being well-fed and cared for without questioning the underlying conditions of captivity or constraint that shape the very nature of their lives, end quote. In short, welfareism seeks to better the lives of animals within the agricultural industry, laboratory research, zoos, circuses, and aquariums, and many other venues within which animals are currently being exploited. To bring it back to freedom, you write, quote, 
If you look through the entire corpus of books on animal welfare science, you will find no discussion of freedom with a capital F. You will find little to nothing that challenges the status quo or that raises serious moral obligations to the various ways in which we routinely compromise animal welfare. That welfare will be compromised is a given, end quote. Could you talk to us briefly about welfare science and the role it plays in substantiating and scientizing and ethically neutralizing crimes against animals? Well, animal welfare basically boils down in practice, and that's what I really care about. All the philosophical discussions really don't do much for me. In practice, it means that it's okay to use non-human animals for human ends. It's okay to torture them and harm them if we're doing the best we can to reduce their pain and suffering. So it really, while some people would claim, you know, we really have the best interests of the animals in mind, you might have the best interests in the, of the animals in mind, but it allows you to do things that often are reprehensible and cause great pain, suffering, and death. So that's why welfare science fails a lot of animals, because people take the cop out and say, well, you know, we got to use them for something, but we're doing the best we can to minimize harm, pain, and, um, and killing them. And that, I mean, that's what welfare science is. And are animals better with welfare science than without? Somebody recently asked me that. And I suppose I guardedly say yes, but the things that the Federal Animal Welfare Act in the United States allow are reprehensible. You know, people wouldn't do them to their dogs, for example. And people don't know that the Federal Animal Welfare Act in the United States was rewritten and the revision says verbatim that we've changed the definition of animal to exclude mice, rats, birds, fishes, invertebrates. And I I was amazed when I read that in your book. I, I shouldn't have been, but I still was. But I mean, people don't believe it, but it's online. I mean, it's right there. Um, on, the Federal Animal Welfare website. So that is inane. It's stupid. It just bugs me that my colleagues who know that rats and mice and other animals aren't plants and they're not bacteria. And that's the kind of thing that welfare science allows. It's called the Animal Welfare Act. And try explaining to a six-year-old that a rat or a mouse isn't an animal. And I really mean that. And I've talked to some people. I mean, there are a few scientists who have come out against it, but by and large, they go, well, and then, you know, they go on to something else. So that's what welfare science is in a nutshell. It provides good excuses for people to do pretty horrible things for animals. (laughs) You give the example in your book that the type of question animal welfare study is not what do animals need and want, but what do animals in concentrated animal feeding operations need and want? So I think the question that person posed to you about whether animals are better off or not because of welfare is not such an easy one to answer. On the one hand, of course, some suffering is reduced, but on the other hand, welfareism is a form of maintaining the status quo what compromises need to be made 
so that we can keep things going as they are, keep animals imprisoned in zoos, keep the factory farming system in place. So I don't think it's quite as simple as that animals are better off. The suffering of some individuals is reduced, but the entire system in which they are kept is further entrenched. So I, I don't think it's that simple, the question of whether or not we're better off for it. It's, it's complicated. Yeah, and, and right, and it depends who you mean we. I mean, the animals, yes, like I said, and some people get upset with me. Yeah, I mean, I would have to say that some animals are better off, but being better off doesn't mean they're having a good life. It just means they're being they're better off than if they were tortured without anesthetics or you know analgesics. Um, but but really, the things that researchers are allowed to do that are fully sanctioned by the Animal Welfare Act are reprehensible. And so, yeah. So are they better off? Yeah, they're better off, but they'd be better off not being used at all. So they'd be better off if people would find more workable ways to study the questions at hand than say to use them the way they use them. And welfare also allows them to cloak their practices under the banner of humane, humane treatment. When I go to the supermarket, it says humanely treated turkeys for sale. The turkey has been slaughtered so that it can be eaten. And yet somehow we're being told it's been treated humanely. The, the word humane obviously doesn't mean what it looks like it means if if that's the case. And the word welfare works the same way. Oh, right. I mean, there be, it's, you know, Jessica and I in our book call it humane washing because that, because that's basically what people are doing, you know, and, and once again, you know, it's, it's a sad thought. But, you know, so these animals are better off than if they weren't given some kind of treatment, if you will, but or treatment to improve their state of being. But once again, if you just look at a list of the things that welfare science allows, then <laughs> you've got to be really pretty careful. Your book is structured to cover some of the ways in which humans compromise the well-being of animals. The main domains covered are animals to be used for food and clothing, laboratory animals used for scientific experimentation, entertainment animals, including zoo animals, captive pet animals, and wild animals living within the influence of humans. I'd like to ask you about the animals we use for food and clothing. On the one hand, I, I feel this topic is is so well covered as to be almost redundant. And yet, according to a September 2019 Gallup poll, 5% of Americans say they're vegetarian and 3% report being vegan. And apparently these numbers are very little changed since 2012. So despite all the change that's been happening around us, it seems the numbers aren't really changing that much. You write that, quote, of all the venues of animal use we explore in this book, the food animal setting imposes by far the most severe welfare problems, both in terms of the sheer numbers of animals involved and the nature and extent of the welfare compromises and pain we impose on them, end quote. So if it's all right, I'd like to quote a little bit more as I, I think that you very concisely convey the, the full enormity of the violence we're perpetrating against animals for our food. Quote, 
Most of the animals who become someone's meal are produced in these large-scale industrial farming systems. Animals in intensive farming systems have essentially no freedom. They are confined to small cages or crates, or else they are packed into a large space with so many other of their kind that physical movement is highly constrained. Their biological development is controlled by us. They are genetically manipulated to develop in certain ways, nearly always physically deforming and painful. They are given highly processed and regularized feed to be distinguished from food, to promote quick growth and fatten them up. They certainly don't have freedom to live a natural lifespan, as nearly all food animals are slaughtered while young, which may be a blessing. In addition to physical constraints, food animals are unable, for a variety of reasons, to engage in normal behaviors as individuals and as social beings. They have little to no control over social interactions and attachments. Either they are isolated, or they are housed in overcrowded groups that don't allow normal social interactions to take place. And subject them to increased aggression from their fellow inmates. When densely housed, hens peck at each other and pull out feathers, while if allowed normal interactions, they would typically only peck to maintain a social hierarchy. They rarely have a choice about where, when, whether, and with whom to reproduce, if at all. Most are denied the pleasures of sex, since the majority of breeding is accomplished artificially, and the parent-offspring bond is almost always broken, causing suffering to mother and baby. Maternal behaviors are thwarted. For example, dairy cows will bellow for their calves for days when separated, end quote. I think that captures a lot of what you were trying to convey with this part of your book. But is there anything else you'd like to add concerning animal agriculture and your agenda of freedom, compassion, and coexistence? You know, first of all, they enjoy no freedoms really to speak of. You know, they live, they live horrific lives in the service of human meals, if you will, say. They're, they're depending on the, the food that people are, depending on the food that the animals are being prepared for, you know, they could live as veal calves and be unable to move in these little cages. People don't know that, like most of these pigs have their tails and their testicles and their teeth cut out or cut off with no anesthetic. They could be forced to breed. Babies are ripped away from their mothers in dairy operations. After they're born, depending once again where they're destined to go, they have to travel and they're transported in trucks. They're just jammed in. It's, you know, it's almost like how many people can you fit in a Volkswagen? How many cows or pigs can you fit in a truck? They suffer immensely on their journeys from, say, where they were born or kept to the slaughterhouse. And then when they get to the slaughterhouse, it's another drama for them. They get lined up. Temple Grandin calls it the stairway to heaven, where the animals line up and trod down to the killing floor where they're either, you know, have their necks sliced or their heads bolted. And, and, and people don't know that. And Paul McCartney used to say that if the walls of slaughterhouses were transparent or were windows, that, you know, most people would go vegetarian. It's an interesting thought, but of course, the dairy industry is among the most egregious violators of anything that's decent in terms of animal welfare standards. And, you know, then you could go into poultry, you know, chickens and turkeys who are 
tortured and killed by the millions, or, or fishes and aquatic animals who each year are killed and tortured by the trillions. So this abuse is hidden from people, and they don't know. You know, kids don't know that a hamburger is really a cow burger or um, bacon, sausage, and ham are pigs. And that's why I often talk about babe lettuce and tomato sandwiches, not bacon lettuce and tomato sandwiches, to get the conversation going. Because bacon lettuce and tomato sandwiches really are babe lettuce and tomato sandwiches. I like to talk about what I call the babe fallacy. People see movies like Babe, and they get in mind the image of the small farm with a loving couple. Maybe a few dozen acres, maybe a few dozen animals in total, across many species. Free roaming, of course. And that becomes, in their mind, the vision of the circumstances of the food they eat. Whereas, in fact, there is a 0.00001% chance that those are the actual circumstances, and Right. There's a 99.999% chance that their food came from a factory farm. Yes. No, that's right. Exactly. I mean, you know, that's why, you know, when people say what's really important, I mean, there's a lot of things that are important, but education is really important because there's people who don't know about this stuff. It's not like they're inherently mean or don't care. They just don't know about what goes on in these various industries from food to research to animals used in entertainment or even companion animals. I mean, they just, they just don't know about it. And, you know, I, you know, some people say, well, excuse me, well, how can they not know about it? Well, they may not know about it. Just like, I don't know a lot about things that I don't work on. So I think the assumption that people know something and are, you know, then otherwise being, you know, treated, be, treating non-humans in mean ways is, you know, that they're bad people say, but they're not. They just, they simply don't know what they don't, they don't know what's happening to the animals because they're lied to or the abuse is really badly hidden. Do you know, is there a good book on the ag gag laws? I've been trying to find one, a book, and based on what I've been able to find, I, I don't know if one exists. I'm not sure. I don't know of any offhand. I mean, you could, you know, I would just do a search on Amazon. Um, there's been articles, but no, I, right. I, the, I don't know if there's been a book that's actually, you know, excuse me, looked into these, the, um, the ag gag laws. I, I, I'd be surprised if there wasn't something like a um, a review article or, you know, articles in some maybe magazines about it. I think last year I saw some articles that may have come from um, maybe some law journals because there's so many obvious legal, um, you know. Right. I, I'm certain there are articles. I'm I'm surprised there isn't a book yet. It's such an important topic. And the legal implications are so great. You would think that people would be racing to write that book. Well, somebody might be writing it now because it takes a hell of a long time to write a book. <laughs> Especially about a topic that the law literally prevents you from discussing. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. 
but people need them because pe- people I talk to don't, they just don't know this. They don't believe, a few people don't believe it. Like a few people don't believe that the Animal Welfare Act excludes rats and mice, for example. They just don't believe it. They say, oh, you know, you're just some kind of radical and this is how you feel. So I just show them the website and they come away and they're incredulous. So it's the same with the ag-gag laws that, you know, there are certain things that we should be able to do under maybe the First Amendment or something like that. But but we're not allowed to do it. It seems there's a, a step between learning the facts and changing one's behavior. Yeah. I do think that more and more people are coming to understand that the situation is, is not a good one. But there's just a lag between that and the actual change in behavior. But the hope is that that's just what it is, a lag, and that we will start to see the numbers of vegans increasing uh, more swiftly in the near future. Right. I mean, getting back to our book, The um, the Animal's Agenda, that's why we developed the idea of the knowledge translation gap. And that refers to the gap being not using what we know on behalf of other animals. Right. And there's things we've known for decades on that, you know, that, that we don't use or the, the people who like to abuse animals who abuse animals will, you know, show us the data. You know, it's like people who question whether animals are really sentient or have rich emotional lives. I mean, it's just ludicrous to me. I mean, where have they been? And, and oftentimes I'll say, oh, do you live with a dog? Uh-huh. And does your dog enjoy playing? Uh-huh. And does your dog miss you? Uh-huh. And I'll say, well, what about elephants and wolves and coyotes and birds and fishes? And it gets really quiet. So people become these functional speciesists where they wouldn't dare treat their dog or cat or other companion animal in a certain way. And they don't even question the treatment and harm that's brought to other mammals, say, in this case. Let's turn to entertainment animals. You concisely dispatch with most forms of how we use animals. You write, quote, circuses involve humiliation, punitive training techniques, and poor living conditions for captive animals. Rodeos and dog and cockfighting make spectacles of animals through overt violence. Dog and horse racing are exploitative and often involve physical injury to the animals. Even venues in which humans can interact with wild animals and where the animals are not subjected to overt abuse can be harmful. Opportunities to swim with dolphins or pet wild tiger cubs involve a loss of freedom for the animals and a disruption to their lives for the purposes of momentary human delight, end quote. You spend most of your time in this chapter on zoos, which are the most complex of the entertainment settings, as they at least put on the facade of caring about the animals. But here, too, you see the same logic of industry and welfareism that we saw in the laboratory and agriculture settings. You write, quote, in some respects, zooed animals are like farmed animals because every aspect of their lives is managed by their human keepers. In welfarist lingo, this is zoo animal management. Zoo animals are carefully bred using stud books and genetic analyses. Social groupings are manipulated. Animals are fed and watered at set times. 
Deaths are scheduled and orchestrated by veterinarians or zoo managers. Reproductive cycles are watched, sometimes controlled. Birth is carefully managed. At some zoos, newborns, the core genetic inventory, are taken from their mothers and killed off if not needed, or sold off if necessary to optimize the zoo holdings and maximize profit. The costs of providing for animal welfare are always balanced against profit and optimization, end quote. In short, you write, quote, the basic welfare problem of zoos and the violation that causes the most misery is the loss of the big F, freedom, end quote. So again, I, I've covered a lot here, but I, I do want to capture it because I think that you concisely, concisely pull together so much. Is there anything you'd like to add concerning the use of animals for entertainment purposes, including zoos? Sure. I mean, it, it's like what I said before. I mean, elephants in circuses are shackled and whipped with bull hooks. There's not a hell of a lot of freedom there. Lions and tigers and other animals who are trained to do stupid and unnatural tricks are often trained using abusive methods, and they're kept in tiny cages. There's, there's not, nothing natural or free about that. Animals used in films, although it, I'm told it's getting better, but I don't know that it is, are often trained using horrific methods to get them to do what they really need to do, you know, in a short amount of time. So a filmmaker doesn't have to do 35 takes on the same scene. So training animals to entertain us can be really, really, really abusive. And, and once again, it's just one of the many ways in which we take the freedoms away from these animals to perform for us. So it's basically in the name of humans, these animals are being caused to suffer greatly. I think zoos are very tricky and very important because I see all the time online on social media, friends and family bringing their children to zoos and zoos are able to use language around conservation and education. As I think you point out in your book, and I've always felt this to be true, the suggestion that zoos educationally advance the cause of animal rights or conservation, it just doesn't hold up. We've had public zoos for 200, 300 years now, and pretty much everyone I know who takes their families to zoos still eats meat without really much suspicion that there's any problem there, and conservation isn't going very well either. So what good zoos are doing in terms of educating the public or increasing empathy escapes me. And I, I just hope moving forward that our listeners will be attentive before going to zoos or engaging in other forms of animal entertainments. Big cats, for example, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but in nature, they roam tens of thousands of miles over the course of a year. And in zoos, they have what? Half an acre, if that, maybe less, maybe tens of feet in cages at some zoos. So the question of zoos seems very important to me in, in zoos and other entertainments. Is this what the animal would like to be doing? It's a real question. Animals are autonomous beings. They have preferences. People miss the relevance of this question. Is this what animals would like to be doing? Yeah, because the animals are free to move around in their tiny little, little cages. It's like some zoos have what they call elephant enclosures. So they're larger than the tiny little wire cages or steel cages, but they're still cages. 
I mean, you you know, you you can't even begin to satisfy the natural needs and requirements, for example, for wide-ranging carnivores or elephants, for example. I mean, there's lots of other animals, including birds, for whom you can't begin to approximate what they would have in the wild. But but a welfareist might say, well, okay, we're constraining them, but we're you know we're giving them free meals, a bed, and veterinary care that they wouldn't have in the wild. And you know, I mean, I know you can't ask the animals that, but you know, I think that they'd be happier living wild lives. And yes, I fully understand as a field biologist who's done field work on many different animals that life in the wild often can be really, really t- tough, but I just think that we should respect the wildness in in these animals. And if we choose to keep them in captivity for totally anthropocentric reasons, I mean, let's not, you know, kid ourselves. We're not keeping those animals in these small cages for their betterment, usually. Then, you know, um, we're obliged once again to do all we can to maximize their freedoms and ultimately shut down and or change or reform zoos and circuses into rescue centers, for example. I mean, of, of course, the same logic applies to aquariums. I don't know if all fish are classified as exotic species, but all fish are exotic animals. None of them have gone through anything remotely similar to domestication. And I feel like there is general agreement that the species that is the least okay to keep are exotic species, the ones who have not adapted genetically in any way to living with humans. So the same logic applies in force to all fish, any fish kept in aquariums or tanks or anything like that. For fish to go from freely swimming into living in tiny tanks or aquariums, this is an incredible restriction in their ability to move around and live full lives. And even if they were born in captivity, their genetic makeup encourages them. They have genetically patterned behaviors that encourage them to roam around in the water that they live in. So for fish to go from, so for fish to go from freely swimming, this is an incredible restriction in their ability to move around and live full lives. And that's another really important thing that you and Jessica do in your book. You you look at the holistic picture of the animal. You ask how full is the life, including hunting or evading prey. Animals in the wild live full lives. Their sensory apparatus is constantly engaged, looking for prey or evading predators, smelling around, keeping track of where they are. And we should ask this about the animals that we're using. How engaged are they by the world in which they live? How full is their daily existence? And how much do we strip away when we keep them in captive conditions? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. We're stripping away for carnivores the ability to go hunt, which is part of who they are. And on the flip side, we're stripping away, you know, the anti-predatory behaviors that ungulates and deer and antelope perform. And I wish the world would have evolved in a, in a different way, but that's what it is to be an antelope or a deer or a moose or an elk is that you 
are food for other species. And yeah, it's a, it's a good phrase to say stripping away because that's exactly what we, we do. And, you know, people have suggested, well, give roadkill to, say, wolves and other carnivores in captivity. And maybe maybe some places could do it, you know, after hours, but <laughs> they're not going to do it during during visiting hours because people don't want to see that. But they need to know that a wolf in captivity who lives in an unnatural pack and gets packaged food in many ways isn't really a wolf. I mean, they may perform some of the ba- same basic behavior patterns that wolves do, but they're not really a wolf because say to be a wolf involves living in a pack, being free to roam. Um, yes, behavior can be constrained if you're perhaps a low ranking animal, but you're also hunting and you're sharing food and you're protecting and def- you're acquiring and, you know, say protecting and defending territories. So being a wolf behind bars in a cage at a zoo and being fed, you know, it might be good good for the animals who are in that situation. But overall, it's a horrific situation. So if you want to think of classes of animals where you should begin, you know, phasing them out, you know, it could be the wide ranging carnivores. But I'm all for phasing out all, you know, live animals in zoos unless they're being re- they're recuperating or being rehabbed for something and stopping uh, the shipping around of animals as breeding machines. You know, people don't know that, but, you know, animals get shipped around and they're forced to breed. And yeah, like, well, so are domestic dogs. I mean, who are animals, of course, but yeah. So, I mean, once again, like you said before, it's common things that happen all the time, but people, don't really pay much attention to them, but that's what happens. So, you know, you, I would cut out shipping animals around. I would stop cap, no more captive breeding. We'll phase these animals out and zoos can then open their doors as rescue and rehab centers. So I, th- I think that's a good transition point. So we covered the science of animal welfare a few questions ago. Let's now turn to the science of animal well-being, which you advocate for as a replacement for animal welfare. Again, animal welfare studies the behavior of animals to get insights into their preferences and pains, but it does so in a very limited setting of animal agriculture, zoos, etc. Again, you give the example that the type of question animal welfare study is not what do animals want and need, but rather what do animals in concentrated animal feeding operations want and need? Animal welfare operates within the system for the purpose of maintaining and optimizing the status quo. The science of well-being, as you write, begins with the same insights into animal intelligence and emotions that animal welfare does, that animals have subjective experiences, that animals not only experience negative feelings like pain and fear and frustration, but also experience pleasure, happiness, excitement, and other positive feelings. And that behavior offers a clear window into animals' feelings. But the science of animal well-being goes further. Quote, We know enough right now to know that animals want to be free from human exploitation, free from captivity, and free from the sufferings we impose on them. End quote. 
So this is certainly a more radical and fundamentally different project than that of the animal welfareists. Could you talk to us briefly about your vision of a science of animal well-being? Yeah, it's, it's actually, on the one hand, it's simple <laughs> to say in practice, of course, it's much more difficult. Science of animal well-being stresses that the life of every single individual matters because they're alive, because they have intrinsic or inherent value, because they are alive. And it means that we won't be trading off the lives of some wolves so other wolves can live, for example. It might be that, you know, from a wildlife point of view, because that's what I do, that just because there's 10,000 of a particular species, it's not okay to kill some of them because there's more of their kind. So it's a huge, it's a very huge difference from animal welfare, because once again, animal welfareists can spout out that we care about all these individuals, but then they still go on and torture them. So animal well-being in many ways could be looked at as not only increasing the bar for how individuals are treated, but for stopping or never starting certain really egregious projects that use animals because they're so violent. And I also do a lot of work in these this really broad global field called compassion and conservation, where the basic tenets are first do no harm and the life of every individual matters. So animal well-being and compassion and conservation are really good bedfellows. And, and, and it's because they stress that every individual matters. The question of conservation and the privileging of individuals or species. Should we privilege the group at the expense of the individual, or should we privilege the individual at the expense of the group? Or if that's a real question at all, it's a fascinating question. And I don't think we have time to have that conversation today, but I'd love to discuss that with you at another time. Sure. Lastly, I'd like to ask you about your sense of the timing as to when we can hope to see such a revolution take place repeatedly throughout your book, you voice optimism. You write, quote, the groundwork is being laid for new ways of thinking about animals and our relationship with them. Research on the cognitive and emotional lives of animals is helping reshape our ideas about who they are and what we can do for them, generating momentum for a significant paradigm shift. I don't want to be naively hopeful. There is still so much progress that needs to be made. But still, I do think it is possible to be optimistic. If I may ask, you've witnessed a few social revolutions in your life. So based on all the change you've seen, how optimistic are you really that we're on the cusp of a major transformation in our relationship to animals? No, I think I'm more of some kind of, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm, I just came up with the phrase while I was talking to you, you know, something maybe an incremental optimist. Mm -hmm. Um, no, I think we're making some progress, you know, for sure in the stores I shop in, there's many, many more vegetarian and vegan options. And, you know, I don't go out very often, even before COVID, but there's more vegetarian and vegan options at a lot of restaurants. So I think things are changing slowly. I think the, this horrific COVID pandemic 
and all the deaths and sick illnesses that are, have occurred and are still occurring, I'm sure, in slaughterhouses and you know, pork companies, pig companies, I call them, are raising awareness among people. And I've had a number of friends just say to me, wow, I just don't think I can, you know, they'll start off saying, I love bacon and I love pork and I love ham and cheese sandwiches. But I've actually had a few people over the last couple of months who have either cut back or stopped eating them because it's a combination. They're concerned about the well-being of the animals, but they're also concerned about the well-being of the people, you know, the uh, slaughterhouse pig company, cow company workers. So I think that with some patience, I'm optimistic that things are changing in the positive, but it's not going to be like a steady, you know, increasing curve. I think it's just going to be sort of an incremental changes over time where people become much more attached to who they eat. I always say it's who you eat, not what you eat. You're, if you're eating, you know, a cow or a pig or another, you know, a, a chicken or a turkey or even fishes, you're eating a formerly sentient being. And, and I've actually had people change their meal plans reasonably soon after I say, who's for dinner? Because mm-hmm. they've never really thought about that. So that, that's actually something that I really I play off of a lot in a nice way. It's, you know, it's who are you drinking? I mean, I understand there's a difference between eating a big steak and drinking some milk. But, but once again, it, when you're drinking milk or eating dairy products, you're really eating torture and you're eating pain and suffering from um, formerly sentient beings. And I think in a very real sense, a dairy cow loses their life as their entire life is devoted to the manufacture of milk for human consumption. They're unable to freely move, to socialize, their children are taken away from them. Their entire meaningful life is taken away from them, even if not in the same way to a cow that gets killed, say, with a bolt to the head. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, you know, I've written some articles and I know people who who know a lot more than I do I mean, actually, in all honesty, I'm glad I don't know as much as them because it would make me right. more ill. But the dairy industry is really violent. Right, right. I mean, forced rape, kidnapping children away from their mothers and people laugh. No, these are female mothers and they have children just like humans have children. And they're forced to breed. And they're, you know, they're depleted by these automatic milk machines. The dairy industry is really violent. And I know people who would argue that it's equally or more violent than the, if you will, meat industry. And eggs too. I would encourage any listeners who aren't certain about how eggs can be violent to Google the term chick culling. Yeah. Which is the process of, in in the U.S. at least, shredding male chicks, shredding them. Because they are not functional in the egg dairy industry. I think other countries use gas. They gas them to death. Right. That's what I was, when I was saying before about, you know, animals who are declared not to be animals, you know, you can throw in mice and rats because that's, those are the animals who researchers use. And there's an incredible amount of money in that breeding industry. 
But sure, throw in your Thanksgiving turkey or your, you know, chicken wings. I mean, it's it's reprehensible. But in the end, I really feel that people like me and you can only put stuff out there and then move on and hope people change their ways. But I I am guardedly optimistic because I also do a lot of work with Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots groups. And I do a lot of work with kids. I mean, kids meaning, you know, could be preteens and teenagers. And I, I still get numerous emails from kids in even elementary school, but middle school and high school who are working on various projects. I had a gal who wanted to close down the Bronx Zoo. I had a gal who was trying to become vegan and she was getting resistance from her folks because only, you know, only crazy people become vegans. And I had this guy who was really appalled by some of the things going on in high school biology classes. So those are the people where you have to focus, you know, and, and, and I love working with them because you can talk to them. You don't have to bully them. You don't have to push them. And then they talk to their friends. I, 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 I just think it's wonderful what's going on now. But but I, I always tell people don't look either for a gold star on your forehead tomorrow because of what you're doing today on behalf of animals. And I also say don't expect changes. So this kind of incremental optimist is fits me, I think. Yeah, I feel the same way. I wouldn't say that I'm optimistic, but when I look around, I think there is some reason for people to be optimistic. I'm too guarded. I, I don't want to get my hopes up. And I think there's something to be said for for not getting too optimistic. But I think there is reason for optimism. And that in itself is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you also have to be optimistic because a lot of times in interviews, I've told people about some stories I've had with younger kids, including some elementary school kids. And this gal said to me once, she, she asked me, you know, well, do you have hope for the future? And I said, yes. And then we started talking. I mean, she's like seven years old. And it just blew my mind. It was so wonderful. She said, well, good, because why should I work for a cause where there's no hope? Right. And I I just thought, exactly. Right. Like, so if you have all these adults tell you, you know, I mean, that there's no hope, then why don't you just go play hide and seek or go ride your bike and or just do something? But, you know, don't waste your time working on behalf of, say, non-human animals and their home. And I've had different sorts of iterations um, or flavors, if you will, of those arguments. An eight-year-old gave up. He didn't didn't want any birthday presents. And he told people to make contributions or, you know, if they wanted to give him cash. I have no idea how that worked out. But or uh, donate to, you know, animal humane societies or their local humane society. Well, that's a good sign for the future. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? Yeah, Jessica Pierce, who you interviewed, and I have a book that will be published next year called Dogs Gone Wild. Imagining the Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans. And it raises a lot of the issues we've talked about, but it's a very exciting book. It's so timely now, given the COVID pandemic, 
but we actually started thinking about it two and a half or three years ago. So we're hoping that book will be out next year, and it talks about what who dogs are now, who what what dog human relationships look like, and what it will mean when when we're gone and as we're leaving. So it raises amazing questions once again, uh, you know, about a wide ranging questions. And it really raises a lot of questions, you know, about who dogs are now and who dogs will become. And it really raises questions about which dogs might do better in a world without us. And I, I mean, I could go on and on, but I can tell you right now that the bottom line is it's a lot of speculation. It's really interesting. And there aren't many, I don't want to say there, if any, but there aren't many um, simple answers. So stand by. <laughs> yeah, I think she mentioned that book when I asked her what she was working on during our interview. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. We all love dogs, and that sounds like an interesting lens to explore them. Yeah. I Yeah, no, totally. I, I agree. And, and, yeah, I mean, I you know, for your listeners, I mean, I write regularly for psychology today. If, I encourage people to write to me if they have questions. And, you know, just go from there. I mean, that's. I'm committed to, if you will, you know, fostering and increasing and non-human animal well-being and putting out the information that so many people either don't have access to or don't know about. That's, that's wonderful. Professor Beckoff, you write in your book, quote, the pieces are here right now for a major paradigm shift in how we think about and interact with other animals. Indeed, they have been here for quite a while, but few are bold enough to say enough is enough, end quote. On behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for being one of those few bold enough to say enough is enough. Your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject. I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I feel the same, and um, there's so much to do, so I just hope people will jump on that train and work for the bettering non-human animal well-being. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Mark Beckoff about his 2017 book, the Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. It's a wonderful book, a compassionate and empathetic book, a fascinating and delightful book, and an important one. I hope that you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time. <laughs>